Are you sick to the back teeth of a weekly menu of evening meals that's so convenient and samey that you could laminate it and you fancy something a bit more special? Cooking tasty varied meals is something that everybody should enjoy doing and can for whether you've got more Worrell Thompson than Anthony in you or you could burn water. Then Gusto provides the solutions for some healthy irresistible meals that cater for all. I cook often around my very busy schedule, I love to, and I'm not afraid to have a dabble at something different, so I found Gusto to be absolutely perfect for me. Since it was founded in 2012, it's been giving you everything you need to create the most incredible home-cooked meals from scratch, delivering to your door perfectly pre-portioned, completely fresh ingredients, meaning next to zero food waste for them and you, and the simplest to follow recipe cards with over 250 each month of which you can choose from to cater for your tastes and delivered to your door when you want them to be. I've used Gusto for a while now and some of the recipes I've been sent are for things that I've never thought of cooking, some I'd even never come across before, and I've loved. There's no hours and hours of delicate and intricate prep involved either, just follow the instructions and you're onto a winner with it. Be it healthy or happy options, whether you want to impress with a dinner party or simply want a decent yet different tea after a hard day at the rat race, there really is something for everyone with Gusto. Head to gusto.co.uk and use code TRUECRIMEENTHUSIAST for 60% off your first box and 25% off all boxes for two months. Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, coming to you this time around from a snowbound North Wales, and where each time around I bring you a tale of true crime that may be off the norm, be unfamiliar or obscure, that I've sought out from the annals that the UK and Ireland have to offer. The I doing this is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, He's black, white, and never really out of my sight. My beloved true crime enthusiast cat, Peeksy, is here also. And undoubtedly, he'll pop up with his little bell. He did loads in the last episode when I came to edit it. And of course, we're completed by yourselves, the enthusiasts that make the show happen. Or else this is just me talking to myself in my spare room. And I do that far too much as it is. It's as fabulous as always having you joining me in the MOG today, which I thank you kindly for doing so. And I do hope that as you have, then it's for a tale that finds you and yours all good, all safe and all well. So getting into the tale quicker than the McCann's on a publicity tour this time around then. And for it, we're off back to the mid-1980s and to somewhere we visited a couple of times before on The Enthusiast. Northamptonshire, but this time, more specifically, the town of Corby in North Northamptonshire. Stats here. Even though in 2010 it had the fastest growing population in England, it was much more recently voted England's seventh worst place to live. It's second time in the list, apparently. Perhaps that's unfair, I, I don't know, I've never been there, and I'm never sure who votes for these things, so disregard that. The town was also at one time known locally as Little Scotland due to the large number of Scottish workers who came down to Corby for its steelworks, and this Scottish heritage is still cherished by many inhabitants there, with many Scottish social and sporting clubs, many fervent supporters of Rangers and Celtic football clubs, 
Indeed, reportedly Corby was home to the largest Rangers supporters club outside Glasgow and Northern Ireland until its closure in February 2013. And they have an annual Highland gathering featuring traditional Scottish sports, music and dancing, which is held in the town. Now the two best points I could come up with concerning Corby are firstly, that local legend states that it is there, anywhere outside Scotland, that sees the highest sales of the Scottish soft drink Iron Brew, with the Asda supermarket in Corby reportedly selling 17 times more of it than any other store in England. Now if anybody listening from Scotland can tell me the appeal of Iron Brew, then genuinely, please, by all means, get in touch and do so, because, personally, I'd rather drink my own piss. Secondly, reportedly, a crater on Mars discovered in the late 1970s is named after Corby in reference to a famous transcript of a conversation in June 1969 between the crew of the Apollo 11 space mission and mission control, whereby world news was relayed to the crew Amongst it being the news that, I quote, In Corby, an Irishman named John Coyle won the world's porridge eating championship by consuming 23 bowls of instant oatmeal in 10 minutes. You wouldn't want to use the bog after him, would you? The reply from Apollo 11. I'd like to enter Aldrin in the porridge eating contest next time. He's on the 19th bowl, Roger. What a funny story. On a cold winter's day in February 1986, Corby was also the scene of one of the most callous and horrific crimes imaginable, and yet one that's only come back into the knowledge of the wider public in recent years. It's one of those odd ones that seems to vanish from public conscious, like McGreevy's crimes or the monster of Goose Meadow. And yet so horrific is it, such a monster we're talking about here, you'll come to think, but how could something like this ever not be common knowledge? It is a tale also that, as it goes on, will anger and exasperate you too. It certainly did me, and all I can say is that really, some people need their heads knocking together and a good kick up the arse. There is the best part of bugger all really available to research about the case, but since I came across it, it's haunted me a bit. It's a tale I'm compelled to tell. And so you work with what you have the best you can. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events involving a child that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast for an episode that I've entitled Colette. It seems a whole world away now, but back in 1986, and we've heard this before on the show, children seem to have that much more freedom. The world seemed to be that much more of a safer place. Kids were given seemingly more space and trust, and less supervision. Of course, the threat's always been there, but when you were a youngster back then, and personally, I'd just turned eight, you didn't realise or recognise it. You were carefree, trusting, you just didn't think about the bad in the world. Youngsters back then, many are today parents themselves. And though I'm sure you can identify with what I'm saying here, because you did it, you were that kid, you imagine your own children, 
and you just sadly can't give them that same space, that same lack of supervision, because you know what we didn't back then. The devils lurk in many corners, sometimes almost in plain sight. In 1986, Colette Gallagher was a happy and inquisitive six-year-old who knew nothing but safety and love and was the apple of her grandparents' eye. The previous year, the marriage between Colette's mother, Karen, and her father, Andrew, had broken down, and Karen, Colette, and her baby sister, Lauren, who was then barely a toddler, had moved from the family home in Corby's West Glebe Road and in with Karen's parents, Anne and George Roberts, across to the west of Corby to their house in the town's Cransley Gardens. Being six years old and more preoccupied with being a new big sister, plus still seeing her father regularly, Colette had soon adjusted to this move, and with Karen wanting to maintain as much normality for her daughter as possible, Colette had still attended the same school that she'd settled into two years before, Our Lady of Walsingham Catholic Primary School just off Ashdown Place, and coincidentally, where Karen also worked part-time as a cleaner and kitchen assistant. However, Karen didn't work a set number or rota of hours each week. It was a mix of mornings and afternoons, and, combined with it now being a two-mile journey to school for Colette each day, rather than a hundred-yard walk, plus the little bit of responsibility you have to give children, and six does seem far too young now, doesn't it? But as I said before, it seemed a different world back then. But Colette was soon sometimes taking the number five bus to school by herself of a morning, her mother giving her the 21 pence required for a fare each day. Now, I'm not suggesting that this wasn't decided anything but lightly by Karen, though she was somewhat placated by the fact that other children caught the same bus each day plus the bus stop was only a short walk from her grandparents' house, and even with her travelling by herself, Karen would more often than not see her daughter to the bus stop and wave her off from there, or at least watch her until she was almost there, with Colette having strict instructions not to talk to any strangers, not to accept sweets or the offer of a ride or anything, just to get on the bus and get off safely at school. The morning of Friday 28th of February 1986, a day that was to change several lives, at first started no differently then. Colette had woken and helped her mother with the sister she doted on, had dressed herself and breakfasted, and just after 8am, dressed in her grey pinafore school dress, white tights and brown moccasin boots, had pulled on her pink jacket, complete with her favourite fluffy pink earmuffs, had kissed all of her loved ones goodbye, and had set off out of the door to catch her bus, the stop for which was just a short walk away from her grandparents' home at the junction of Rowlett Road and Willowbrook Road. Colette, sadly, missed her bus that morning. When Karen got to Our Lady of Walsingham that lunchtime, one can only imagine the panic, the crippling fear that must have hit her when one of Colette's friends came over and asked her, Miss, is Colette not well today? She's not here. When she was informed of her daughter's absence, Karen immediately thought the child was taken from the school or had left there on her own, as she'd been with her until moments before she was about to get on the school bus. 
when it was established from a teacher that Colette had never made it into school that morning. Karen was then frantically on the telephone to home, asking if Colette was there, and then to her estranged husband, thinking that she might be with him. But of Colette, there was no sign. A missing child carries that impetus, doesn't it? I've said before on the show how many years ago a kid I knew went missing and I took part in a mass search for him. Now he was soon found, thankfully, but I shall never forget that sense of urgency felt. And so hunts swing into action with missing kids and pretty soon more than 120 officers, some drafted in from across Northamptonshire Constabulary, had flooded the town making door-to-door inquiries searching through bins and outhouses, parklands, empty buildings, desperately searching for any trace of Colette. Detective Superintendent Tony Buckmaster, the senior officer who had been placed in charge of the search for Colette, was initially upbeat about the chances of finding her quickly, telling reporters who were immediately on the story that it was his thought that she may be injured somewhere or would simply be out with friends. Now this was an explanation that the former was worrying and added urgency to the search, whilst the latter point made little sense, because all of Colette's friends would be in school, where she was supposed to be. But as the hours passed that afternoon with no trace of Colette, and with the freezing February temperatures settling in, as night fell, fears for the girl began to grow, and the hunt intensified. House-to-house inquiries continued late into the night, concentrated on the areas of Corby stemming from the route that Colette would have taken to the bus stop. And the Northamptonshire Telegraph newspaper in the following days published several pictures of those involved in the search for the missing girl, including a picture of two officers making inquiries outside the former number 58 Ashley Avenue at 11pm that evening. It would later emerge that they'd knocked on the door of that house at that time because an earlier inquiry there had revealed no one home and that they'd been given no reason for suspicion to. Not then, anyway. By Saturday the 1st of March, 24 hours after Colette had last been seen, as bleak a day as any of the people of Corby had ever encountered, some 700 town residents had joined the search for the missing girl alongside Colette's dad, Andrew Gallagher, and began a sombre search over the open areas around the town which was to last for the following three days. Searching Thurisail Woods, alongside Corby Boating Lake, in nearby West Glebe and Coronation Parks, through quarries, rubbish dumps and the town's old steelworks, accompanied by specialist police search teams with tracker dogs and a police helicopter assistant. There are several pictures available of people searching for Colette and the scale involved is quite remarkable. But this is the urgency a missing child brings. You don't hesitate to join in any search, do you? You do what you can. By Monday, March the 3rd, with the situation growing increasingly desperate, a picture of Colette, a school photograph that shows the smiling girl, her front teeth missing, and a mocked-up image of Colette wearing the clothes she'd gone missing in. Pink jacket, grey pinafore dress, brown moccasin boots, pink earmuffs and white tights had been released to the media, and as officers had put together a clearer picture of what by then they thought were the little girl's last known movements. All known sex offenders in the area had been traced and eliminated, and everyone, 
everyone who had any kind of link to Colette, however tenuous, was being spoken to, from neighbours and close friends of her father's she knew as uncle so-and-so, to members of the social club her father was a patron of who knew the girl and would buy her crisps and pop. Everyone was spoken to. The answer to Colette's disappearance was still thought to be found close to home, with Detective Superintendent Buckmaster telling the media, we still feel it's a strong possibility she went off with someone she knew. Her exhausted mother Karen, meanwhile, made a heartbreaking public appeal for the safe return of her daughter, saying, She's just a child who can do you no harm, and I beg you not to hurt her. Can't even imagine, can you? But with the mass search showing no sign of Colette whatsoever, police were forced to the conclusion that someone had abducted her, which a trace of Colette's last known movement had hinted at. These movements were not exactly clear, and indeed, to this day, have never been corroborated. I'll come back onto that a bit later. But police thought Colette had left home at 8.05am to catch the number 5 bus as usual, and on her way to the bus stop had called into the Willowbrook Road post office to perhaps buy confectionery, as children sometimes do on their way to school. She was reportedly seen queuing for the school bus at the bus stop, at the junction of Rowlett Road and Willowbrook Road, at 8.30am. But what is certain, and this is where the waters become muddied somewhat, is that for whatever reason, Colette either deliberately did not get on the bus, or she missed it, and this sighting is mistaken, because she was never near the bus stop to even get the bus. Around 9am, Colette went back to the Willowbrook Road post office, where she stopped in and bought four bags of crisps, costing 45 pence in total. Now, her mum had only given her the exact 21 pence she needed for her bus fare, so police were wondering about where this extra money had come from, concluding that a man seen near the post office, reportedly with Colette, had given it to her. A photo fit of this man was issued, based on a description by Colette's neighbour, Fred Paling, who had been taking his girlfriend's daughter to school that morning, when he'd seen a man holding hands with a young girl he thought was Colette near his home, and that described a scruffy-looking, unshaven male between 30 to 48 years old, about 6 feet tall, and wearing a brown Prince of Wales check overcoat, brown trousers, and moccasin-style shoes. He also possibly had a Scottish accent. Now another report to police also was that a scruffy man with a Scottish accent was seen near the bus stop that morning around the same time Colette would have gotten on the bus. What was possibly the same man and girl were then reportedly seen hailing a taxi that collected the pair from by the post office and which took them to Corby Town Centre where they were seen at Corby Town Centre bus station later in the morning and again at lunchtime walking through the town's Corporation Street. If this had been Colette, Karen said that if it was her daughter, she thought Colette must have known the man well enough to trust him, whoever he was, because she was convinced her daughter wouldn't have gone off with a stranger. Now these sightings of a man and a girl, I believe, are most likely not Colette and a stranger. But the following day, there was an unexpected 
and tragic breakthrough. On the afternoon of Tuesday, March 4th, police and an ambulance were summoned to a flat on Cecil Drive on Corby's Exeter estate, about a mile and a half from Colette's home, with reports that an occupant of one of the properties there had attempted to kill himself and was seriously injured. The flat in question was occupied by a man named Jez Larmore, but when police arrived, it was found that it wasn't he who had attempted suicide, but a friend of his who had been staying with him since the previous evening, a 25-year-old local man named Adam Stein, a fabricator with a history of drug use and petty crime. Finding him lying on a blood-stained divan bed in the spare room, Stein had slashed both his wrists and was badly injured, although not life-threatening, and had left a rambling suicide note which was then read by police as paramedics treated him. In part, the note referenced everything going wrong and how Stein had done wrong. The full text of the note has never been made public. But in another part, what officers read had them immediately racing around to number 58 Ashley Avenue, a house almost within sight of Colette's home, just a hundred or so yards away, to begin searching the property. Police had already called at the house on the very first day of the search for Colette, but no one had been home. As I said, officers were pictured outside it, and it was there, in the house that Stein shared with his young wife Sarah and their baby, also called Adam, that a short time later, officers made a horrific, heartbreaking discovery in the loft. The discovery that every officer involved in the hunt for Colette must have by then been sadly expecting, but desperately wanted to be proved wrong. A police spokesperson said later that evening to the assembled media. Following a search of a house at number 58 Ashley Avenue, Corby, at about 5pm today, police found the body of Colette Gallagher concealed in the attic. That must be horror beyond belief. It must be an image you take to your grave with you, wasn't it? As officers stood guarding the pebble-dashed council property and with other officers guarding Stein as he was treated in hospital for the cuts to his wrists, Home Office pathologist Dr Peter Andrews had visited the house to certify death before the body was removed and taken away for post-mortem. The later post-mortem found that Colette had been violently sexually assaulted. That was the adverb used and it both hurts my heart and chills and sickens me to think why it was chosen, before being suffocated. By the following day, Detective Superintendent Buckmaster told a press conference that the post-mortem examination had also shown that Colette had been dead for two to three days when she was found, adding, We all worked very hard to find her alive, and we are very, very sad that she's been found in these circumstances. The previous day, after Colette's identity was confirmed, senior officers had left the house to break the news to her mum Karen, who was being comforted by her parents, who'd helped look after one-year-old Lauren following Colette's disappearance, as since she'd vanished, Karen Gallagher had been under sedation. Following the news of Colette's body being found, her grandmother, Anne Roberts, said, through her own tears, The doctor is with Karen now, 
but she's in a terrible state. It's terrible to think that while everyone was out searching all over Corby, Colette was so close to us. We felt all along that Colette was somewhere close by because she never caught the school bus. She passed this house where she was found every day on her way to school. Police have told us nothing yet about how Colette died, but we just hope whatever happened was quick and she didn't suffer. And how I wish I could tell you that was true. In disbelief, local people began to gather at the house Stein had lived at with his wife and baby son, some to leave tributes, others just angry and just needing to be there to vent. I'm sure that you know what I mean. One 11 year old told reporters, We spent all that time looking everywhere for her, and all the time she was here on our own doorstep. Stein's friend, Jez Larmore, who had contacted police and the ambulance, told the papers that day. On Monday, Adam turned up and said he'd rowed with his missus and asked if we could put him up. My girl and I gave him the spare bedroom. When she came home yesterday, she was met by the horrible sight of him lying on a divan. There was blood all over the place. What had led to Stein's capture was that reportedly, police were visiting the block of flats where he was staying with a summons for a neighbour, and when Stein saw them arrive, he thought he was about to be arrested, and slashed his wrists. Police were unsure of whether the guilt he'd professed in his note when trying to end his own life was genuine though, or was just a result of his coming down off the drug high that he was on at the time. On Thursday 6th of March, Colette's classmates wept and the whole school prayed for her family. As then headteacher at Colette's school, Sister Mary Teresa Cochran led prayers for Colette, saying, Colette is now a little angel in heaven. We've prayed for her. We shall miss her. Everyone here is so shocked because the tragedy of her death is so great. But it is a family who now need our support. And we shall continue to give it. Also the same day, her inquest was opened and adjourned as is standard. After evidence of identification was given by Colette's father, Andrew Gallagher, though Kettering coroner Michael Colcutt was told by Home Office pathologist Dr Peter Andrews that the cause of death was suffocation. Whilst this was occurring, Stein, now released from hospital where he'd been under constant police guard, appeared before Corby magistrates. He'd been charged with the rape and murder of Colette the previous evening, and now, due to appear in court, he faced what can only be described as a gauntlet of hate. The town, who had been so invested in searching for the child, was horrified by Colette's murder, and an angry mob gathered outside Corby Magistrates Court for his first appearance that morning, screaming abuse and throwing missiles at the van that sped Stein in. With his head covered with a blanket, Stein was hastened into the court for the three-minute hearing, and wearing crumpled dark grey trousers and a blue and white striped shirt, and with several days worth of beard growth, had to be helped into the dock by police officers holding each of his arms. Newspaper reports from the time describe his left arm being heavily bandaged from wrist to elbow, and his right wrist having two large plasters strapped to it. He sat with his head bowed, and twice sobbed audibly 
as he was charged and remanded in custody, saying nothing but simply nodding when asked his name and whether he understood the charge, before being remanded in custody for a week. Stein stumbled and almost fell as he left the dock and had to be helped as he was led away, before with his head again covered in a blanket, he was then bundled out into a police van with upwards of 60 incensed local people, again screaming abuse as he was driven away to Bedford Prison. One man was even dragged from the path of the prison van as it left the courthouse, so desperately was he trying to get to Stein. At a later hearing in July, at Stein's committal hearing, Stein's barrister Julian Griffiths Casey, bearing scenes like this in mind, asked the court to consider sending Stein for trial in Nottingham where there'd been less publicity about the case, although the chair of the Corby bench, Magistrate James Taylor, refused. Stein would face trial there, and quite rightly so. A barrage of hatred such as described is the very least that child-killing scum deserve. On Tuesday the 8th of April, just over a month after a murder, more than a thousand people, including school friends, went to Colette's funeral at Our Lady of Walsingham Roman Catholic Church in Occupation Road, with a hundred more having to stand outside the church. Floral tributes covered the floor of the church as Colette's broken-hearted grandfather, George Roberts, and her dad, Andrew, wheeled the tiny coffin containing her body into the church. In a remarkable act of compassion, Alongside the tributes to Colette that were given at the move-in service, Father Pat McLean also called for forgiveness for Stein, saying, We are all part of the same society, and somehow we cannot wipe our hands of the responsibility for a society where it is no longer safe for little children to walk to the bus stop or local shop unattended. There is something wrong with us. Something wrong with some of us. As Colette was buried at Shire Lodge Cemetery on Rockingham Road later that day, Andrew Gallagher collapsed to the ground, broken, simply unable to bear his grief any longer. Family, friends, indeed, the entire town all then gathered around and closed ranks to protect the devastated and broken family, and money raised by several different organisations not only helped support them, and I'm talking thousands of pounds here, but also helped send sick children to Lords, all done with the blessing of her family and in Colette's memory. A chink of light in a lot of darkness. Members of the public were searched by uniformed police officers as they entered Northampton Crown Court to see Stein stand trial on Friday the 17th of October 1986. So much did they believe a revenge attack on him was likely, and before a public gallery packed with Colette's family and friends, the court hushed as Stein pleaded guilty to the murder of Colette Gallagher, but denied her rape, and so this charge was allowed to lie on file, meaning that Colette's family were, at least, spared the agony of a trial. Colette's mother Karen broke down and sobbed as Northampton Crown Court then heard of the last hours of her daughter's life. Stein, described to the court as a welder and an ex-soldier, though I could find no clarification as to whether he had served in the forces or not, 
he had on the day he murdered Colette been feeling the come down effects of drinking drugs. On February 27th, Stein had embarked on an all night drink and drug binge and had arrived home shortly before 7am the following morning before having a blazing row with his wife who remonstrated with him for him being out all night but who fled the house in terror with the couple's baby son when in his fury Stein put his fist through the living room window. Now it cannot be ascertained if Stein then left the house and began roaming around the streets of Corby or he spotted Colette passing his house on Ashley Avenue as she walked to catch her bus and intercepted her there. But somehow, and Stein claimed he had no memory of events leading up to and including the killing, officers were able to surmise that Stein had convinced her to come with him instead of going to school and offered to buy her crisps, giving her 45 pence to buy him four packs. Colette had happily complied, and when she returned, he had lured Colette into his home in Ashley Avenue. Now, as I said before, it is possible that Stein was this man seen outside the post office. He lived incredibly near to it, he spoke with a Scottish accent and was known to have a moustache, but it can't be ascertained, and the only available photograph of him from around the time bears no resemblance to the photofit description that was issued whatsoever. It is one of those points that just cannot be clarified this. What can be, however, is that Colette ended up back at 58 Ashley Avenue early that morning. Once she was inside, Stein then attacked and raped Colette with great violence, as I said before, before suffocating her. Horrifically, he did this by wrapping sheet after sheet of cling film over her face before putting her lifeless body in a bin liner and hiding it in the loft. A six-year-old girl. There are no words, really. Well, there are plenty of unbroadcastable ones. But that is simply horror beyond words, isn't it? I don't even want to try to imagine. I couldn't. No one can, really. The abject terror that must have gone through that poor little girl's mind in her last moments. And yet, since I've researched this tale, I keep coming back to that haunting thought. I tell this in the detail that I have done, not out of any perverse storytelling, you know me by now, but because as always, I want you to feel the horror that I felt, I want you to really know the kind of monster we are talking about here. And it gets more obscene, for on the Saturday morning, the 1st of March 1986, just 24 hours after Colette had gone missing, the brazen killer had turned up at his local, the Domino, in nearby Kingsthorpe Avenue at about 10.45am, where he chatted with pals, had a few lagers, played pool, and left at about 2.30pm, saying he was taking part in a charity walk. But several sources I use for research claim that actually, Stein had, for a period that afternoon, joined the 700 people who had volunteered to help the police search for Colette in her hometown, knowing full well what had happened to her and where he'd left her, and leaving Colette's family to endure five days and nights of agony, waiting in vain for their little girl to come home. It was suggested that this was part of Stein reportedly waiting for a chance to get rid of Colette's body, and seeing where it had been already searched so he could hide her there. 
but the search was so intense and repetitive with people going back and forth over their tracks that he couldn't find a spot and by the Monday his wife and son had returned to the house which he'd then left and gone to stay with his friend Jez over in Cecil Drive. He'd had another drink and drug binge that Monday and the following afternoon whether it was him realising the game would soon be up or whether he was spooked by police turning up with a summons for the neighbour, he'd written his suicide note and then slit his wrists. Prosecuting counsel David Farrar Casey told the court he said he could not face up to the knowledge that he'd killed the girl. However, he was discovered by Jez's girlfriend who contacted police and an ambulance and which ultimately led to police knocking on the door of number 58 Ashley Avenue. Stein's wife Sarah slept directly underneath the loft there. It was only when the police called that she learned there was a body in the attic. Stein had simply not been able to dispose of Colette's body with so many people out searching for her. Sentencing Stein to life imprisonment with a minimum tariff of 25 years, presiding Mr Justice Tucker told him, what you did to that little girl was horrible beyond belief. The sentence was greeted with Colette's family cheering and clapping, and as Stein was taken away to begin it, Colette's father Andrew shouted from the gallery, I'll be waiting for you. Detective Superintendent Tony Buckmaster, who had led the inquiry, said, The sentence is a true reflection of British justice. Yeah, you'll see just how true those words are shortly. Following the trial, number 58 Ashley Avenue was boarded up, and Sarah Stein and her son moved out of Corby soon afterwards. Her brother told the newspapers, She's not seen a husband and has no intention of doing so. She just wants to forget. She wants to make a new life. As of course is completely understandable and you have to hope that Sarah and her son manage to. A happy one. So, Adam George Stein then. What pit of darkness did he crawl out of? Born in 1959 in Glasgow, Stein who in the only picture that's ever been published of him, in which you can determine his features, looks a grinning dickhead that is the bastard love child of Rude Hullet and Chris Kamara. Stein was described as a bit of a Romeo who left a trail of broken hearts in his wake. He was described as a restless teenager who displayed signs of sexual deviancy from a young age and who was drawn to Amsterdam time and time again in his late teens and early twenties. Travelling there from his Scottish home from the East Coast ports via ferry, attracted by the more liberal attitude to vice and drugs in Amsterdam, where he could enjoy his vices of drug abuse and paying for almost any kind of sex he wanted. He lived as a hippie whilst in the Netherlands, and alongside cannabis use, it was there that he became a heroin addict. Stein also had a number of loveless relationships all of which ended up being short-lived. For example, he married a chambermaid from London whilst in his early 20s and left her almost immediately after their wedding to settle down with another woman from Accrington in Lancashire. He also left her in the same way before moving down to Corby, as we've said, 
home to thousands of migrating Scots, for a fresh start. Here, he managed to obtain a job as a welder at Portal Fabrications on the Findon Road Industrial Estate in the summer of 1985, travelling on the bus from Corby, then catching a lift from his friends in Kettering to Wellingborough, and began to enjoy an active social life in the town, drinking heavily and regularly frequenting the pubs The Domino and The Kingfisher, whilst also regularly using heroin and methamphetamine. He'd met another woman by then, Sarah O'Boyle, whom he married in 1984, with the union producing a child, Adam Craigstein, who was born in June 1985, just before the family settled in Ashley Avenue, a mere 100 yards from where Colette was then living in Cransley Gardens with her mum, a baby sister, and her grandparents. So, the soon-to-be killer had an active social life in the town, plenty of friends, a wife, a baby, a job, and was considered fun-loving and popular. Indeed, children who lived in the neighbourhood innocently spoke of the friendly man who had given them sweets, cigarettes, and had cracked jokes with them. And following his sentencing, Stein's former boss told the Northamptonshire Telegraph, We never had any complaints at all. We were so shocked to hear what had happened. We didn't even suspect him. He got on well with everybody. But Stein's fun-loving personality was just a front. As we've heard, he was a heavy drink and drug user. He had a police record prior to October 1986 filled with convictions for criminal damage, vehicle offences, burglary and assault, and he treated women appallingly. Now, it was speculated that Stein's relationships with adult women simply didn't satisfy him, and with a restless streak in him as described, this is why he moved from place to place and woman to woman as often as he did. However, there may have been other reasons why Stein frequently left the communities that he lived in. Between the years 1980 and 1983, and reports are vague about this, but he was questioned about at least one sexual assault that occurred while he lived in Scotland, possibly in Glasgow where he'd grown up, and where he would have only been about 20 years old at the time, whilst in 1984, he was also arrested in connection with the rape of a young woman in Milton Keynes in Buckinghamshire. However, and this is a fair telling statement, the investigation came to a standstill when police claimed they didn't have enough evidence to prosecute Stein to bring him to trial. A pity for had they, Perhaps Colette would have caught her bus that day. Having committed horror such as described here, and with his risk factors in February 1986, according to a psychologist at the time, including using sexual violence to humiliate a partner, a sexual interest in children, having distorted sexual fantasies about children, and a poor attitude to authority and supervision, such was the danger police believed Stein posed that immediately after he was sentenced, it was reported that they intended to question him in prison over two of what were at the time the most notorious unsolved murders of children in British criminal history, the deaths of Caroline Hogg and Susan Maxwell, two young girls who had been murdered in Scotland in the early 1980s and their bodies later found hundreds of miles away in Utoxeter and Twycross, 
and because of Stein's links to both Scotland and the Midlands, they thought him capable of both killings. Now, spoiler alert, the monster responsible for those deaths wasn't Stein, but he is someone we shall meet in future on the show. Oh, for certain we shall. Just before Christmas 1986, numbers 58 and the adjoining 60 Ashley Avenue were razed to the ground, much like Cromwell Street. Deigned to have seen too much horror to remain, and a new cul-de-sac, Stadpain Close, was created, which is today filled with bungalows. There is also today a memorial bench to Colette in Corby, inscribed with a plaque that reads, Colette Gallagher, 0906-1979, 2802-1986. Never forgotten, forever our angel. Of course Colette would never be forgotten. For several years after her death, her family each year placed memorial notices in the local newspapers on Colette's birthday or the anniversary she was taken from them. With touching words such as from her father Andrew, who died himself sadly only a few years later after suffering a long illness. To wish you were here would be a dream come true. Maybe one day I will awake and all my loved ones that I miss will be there. And to hold you again, then my dream will be over. You're in my thoughts every day. Your dad, Andrew. Or, treasured memories of a darling daughter and loving sister. I miss you more than words can say as I get through life day by day. All our love, Angel, Mum and Warren. How many times I've said this before, I don't know, but how must it be to try to put your life back together after such a loss? Karen and Andrew, though they remained apart, focused on their daughter, Lauren. As I said before, Andrew sadly passed away some years later, but Karen went on to remarry and in the early 1990s had another daughter, Claire. Sadly, Lauren can't really remember her older sister, as she was just a toddler in 1986, and Claire was born a few years later again, so was never to meet her. But whilst growing up, both were aware that Colette was what they describe as our angel. They heard about her, and saw photos of her at their grandparents' house. Lauren, Today a care worker supporting adults with the genetic disorder Prader-Willis syndrome explained many years later. Though she's not here, Colette has always been part of our family. My grandparents said she was a brilliant big sister and couldn't wait for me to arrive. People said she doted on me. You hear more from family, little tidbits as we grew up. We visited her grave, I grew up speaking to a headstone. So we were aware from a young age, and we've got a few pictures from a short life. Mum always found it too painful, and she kept her pictures in private, and we didn't ever want to upset Mum with probing questions, because it was very sensitive to talk about. It was only when we were older that we understood the circumstances. It completely broke my granddad. The one time I saw him cry was at the cemetery. He said, that's all we've got left of your sister. Then he burst into tears. I didn't know what to do, so I just ran to the car. When I saw the picture of Grandad carrying the coffin, I broke down because of the pain on his face. 
We'll go to the cemetery together because that's how we spend time with Colette. We didn't get a chance with her. Lauren and I have an amazing relationship, but it feels someone is missing. And then, in 2004, came the shock of their lives. Stein was applying for parole a full seven years ahead of his minimum term being up. Only, nobody had bothered to tell Karen and her family that seven years earlier, the then Lord Chief Justice, Lord Bingham of Cornhill, had recommended Stein's tariff be set between 18 and 20 years, taking into account his guilty plea and the fact that he had shown genuine remorse. Then Home Secretary, who had supported the decision to do this, Douglas Hurd, explained later that he'd supported the decision because the Lord Chief Justice's views, I quote, carried great weight because he saw all murder cases. Oh yes. Unreally. Hearing that Stein could be out of prison as soon as March 2006, subject to the parole board agreeing he was no longer a risk to the public, and that he'd already been moved to open prison conditions in anticipation of this, Karen told the Northamptonshire Telegraph, Nobody has been in contact with me since the trial. I was told they couldn't find me, but I've lived here for 20 years. When they came and said he was going up for parole, I was disgusted. The trial judge heard all the evidence and recommended a sentence based on that. This man should not even be looked at until 25 years are up. If people take a child in that way, then life should mean life. We are not mentally prepared for him to be released early. This man ruined our lives. He knew what he was going to do to my little girl, and I'm not going to let it lie. Colette's grandmother Anne said When he was sentenced everybody in the court stood up and clapped The judge said he should serve at least 25 years and so he should Yet 19 years later he could be out enjoying Christmas This is not right I had hoped I would be gone before he was ever released I hate him so much Karen together with family and friends then launched a campaign to keep Stein in prison and collected thousands of signatures on a petition protesting at his possible release. Now, in the event, Stein was unsuccessful in applying for parole and was not considered to be fit for release until March 2016, when he was released to an unknown address in the southeast of England. Criminally, because his horrific rape of Colette, which was acknowledged at his sentencing hearing, and at the inquest into her death. Because it was not prosecuted, but left to lie on file to protect her family from having to hear the awful details in court, he was also technically not a sex offender, and as such was exempt from the register. Further so, because he committed his crimes before 1997, the year of its inception. Being on the sex offenders register means that the individual must regularly attend a police station to sign it, with anyone on it also required to notify police of all foreign travel, of where they're staying with a person under 18 for 12 hours or more, and of credit card and bank account details. Someone found guilty of a rape and murder would usually be subject to these requirements for the rest of their lives upon release. 
Within 16 months of his release, however, Stein had committed a series of driving offences and concerns were raised over his drinking and so-called relationship difficulties. So as a consequence, in July 2017, he was recalled to custody. He was declined for parole twice since then, once in late 2017 and again in 2019, where in rejecting his application, the panel heard evidence from a prison psychologist who reported that during his brief release, Stein had demonstrated a string of warning signs including engaging in risky behaviour, an increased use of alcohol, having inappropriate sexual fantasies, using distorted thinking to minimise and justify inappropriate behaviours, and secrecy and a lack of openness and honesty. Bearing in mind, this is what a psychologist found in 2018, which is almost identical to that from back in February 1986. By the 29th of January 2021, the parole board once again directed Stein for release because he now had skills to deal with situations differently and claimed it was no longer necessary to keep him in prison for the protection of the public because he'd taken part in accredited courses to address his sex offending, to avoid illegal substances and to improve his decision making. Conditions of his release would include that he must live in a hostel, be under curfew and subject to monitoring including electronic tagging, whilst he'd also been placed on the highest level of multi-agency public protection arrangements, level 3, which means, for instance, that his murder conviction and rape on file could be disclosed to anyone considered relevant, including an employer, a landlord or a local school, as well as having an interim sexual harm prevention order placed on him, granted when a court is satisfied that an individual, with or without a conviction, presents a risk of sexual harm to the public. A government spokesperson said, Stein will be on license for life and subject to conditions far stricter than the notification requirements for registered sex offenders. We have some of the toughest powers in the world to deal with heinous sex offenders, but we will go further to protect communities and vulnerable people. However, Stein's most recent ex-partner said, Will it all be enough? We knew little of his past. He pretended to have several adult children with his ex-wife. A couple of us found out he'd been in prison about a week before he was recalled. He drunkenly drove his car while disqualified. He then gave us an astoundingly convincing story of how he'd accidentally killed his neighbour's little girl during a drug-filled hallucination. It spurred Colette's sisters, Lauren and Claire, with the complete support of their family, friends, a former mayor of Corby, who coincidentally was a school friend of Colette's, their local MP, and the Northamptonshire Telegraph newspaper, to begin a campaign ideally against Stein's release, but at the very least to ensure that families such as theirs are kept fully informed of all stages when an individual who has caused harm or loss to them is facing release, including details of any name changes and up-to-date photographs of the individual concerned, and to ensure that individuals like Stein are subject to the kind of supervision that the sex offender register brings. 
It goes without saying that none of Colette's family believed he ever should be released. Such was the danger he posed, with Lauren and Claire, who've become the figureheads and spokespersons for the family, describing Stein's pending second release, saying, He had the audacity to pretend he was helping in the search for Colette, and then he was drinking in a pub a few hundred yards from her body. He has never tried to apologise. We know we can't keep him in prison forever, but it is our family who's had the life sentence, not him. He's getting chances at life that Colette will never have. It's fallen very close to Colette's anniversary on the 28th of February. It will be 35 years without her, so the combination of the timing of his release has made it doubly hard for our mum. She just wants peace in her life now. It's a scary thought he's just going to be let back into society because he's a danger to women and children. He had previous alarming behaviours and had been violent towards his wife. He could go back to Scotland in weeks. The more stories we're hearing now, we wonder if there might be others in Glasgow or Scotland who could have been a victim. If anyone does come forward, it could put him back inside for the rest of his life. We understand he has history of being questioned in Scotland in connection with a previous sexual offence prior to murdering my sister. Why did he move from Scotland to England? He could have offended anywhere in the 1980s. We're appealing to anyone who may previously been attacked by him who didn't feel brave enough to come out. Four people from our town have stepped forward with information. The more that come out make us realise how many more cases there could be across the country. We'd urge anyone who thinks they may have been a victim of his in the 1980s to come forward. We'd support them 100%. I know they might think, if I'd said something then, would Colette still be here? But he is the monster. We don't blame anyone else. We understand it's not easy to do. But if someone came forward, it could get him off the streets forever. Now, the sisters' campaign, which also received the backing of former Home Secretaries David Blunkett and Jackie Smith, revealed that when Stein was first released by the parole board in 2016, only to be recalled, what those monitoring him didn't know, or took little action if they did, was that Stein, then 58, was living under an assumed name, using the surname Scott. He'd moved into a small community, in a rural town in East Anglia, lived close to a primary school, had worked on building sites for cash in hand, drank heavily and had become involved in an abusive relationship with a vulnerable 18-year-old, though it's not her real name, who was identified as Stacy. She had learned about Lauren and Claire's campaign and contacted the sisters to offer her help, as did seven other women who claimed Stein had abused them when they were young. Stacy recalled, He had me brainwashed into thinking I loved him. Somehow, he wore me down and made me think it was what I wanted. He was a master manipulator. When I stayed at his place, he sometimes persuaded me to take sleeping pills, to get a better night's rest, he'd say. On a few occasions, I woke up in bed with no recollection of leaving his living room. Lauren said, why wasn't it setting off alarm bells with those supervising him that, at 58, he was with an 18-year-old girl living close to children? Claire added, 
We want to highlight the lack of supervision in case it's happening to others. The system has to get this right. We know that he can't be kept in jail forever. We've accepted that. But we couldn't believe it when we were told he will not be on the sex offenders register. He raped a six-year-old girl. He's always going to be a danger to children. You can flash at someone in the street and be on the register, but you can rape and murder a child and not be on it. Being on the register just gives that extra level of protection for women and children. Both also said they'd take the chance to meet the killer and tell him how he shattered their family, with Lauren saying, I'd love to hear what he had to say. I just want to ask why. I wanted to read my parole statement to him, but it was over Zoom, so all he saw was a paper copy. It's just heartbreaking. No one deserves the pain this family has been through. It's never ending. Her death has impacted every aspect of our lives. The way we were brought up, our trust in the world, our own parenting, how we view life, our physical and mental well-being. When you know the full extent of how dangerous the world is from such a young age, when all your friends are carefree and enjoying childhood, it brings a lifetime of anxiety and fear. When Stein murdered Colette, he took more than one life and ruined many forever. Every happy occasion or celebration we have is marred with thoughts of what ifs. What would Colette be like? Would she be married with children of her own? Would we have extra nieces and nephews to buy Christmas presents for? The loss is still noticed and will be felt by all of us forever. Murder of a child is one of the worst crimes you can commit and yet Stein has still been given the opportunity of a new start, a chance to be rehabilitated and integrate back into society. Not just one chance, multiple chances, to show some remorse and to take the chance Colette never had and do right by it. I ended my statement with, I will fight until my last breath for my sister, and that's what we're going to do. Our biggest fear is that he'll re-offend. We worry it's just a matter of time. Despite the family's fears and appeals, on the 8th of March 2021, Stein was released from prison once again, once again to an undisclosed address in the southeast of England, and on the conditions described. On an electronic tag, subject to random polygraph testing, with a curfew and an exclusion zone which includes Northamptonshire. But in May of that year, Claire and Lauren received a letter written to their MP, Tom Perseglove, from then Justice Secretary Robert Buckland that finally confirmed their long-fought campaign had been successful and that Stein was now on the sex offender register. The letter continues. An SHPO makes the offender subject to the sexual offender's notification requirements, commonly known as the sex offender's register. The SHPO is an interim order. The prohibitions in the order cover various aspects of Stein's lifestyle. He and his legal representatives can challenge the prohibitions at the next court hearing. But, in order to protect Stein's human rights, that's a bit of a stretch, isn't it, really? Claire and Lauren were given no reasons as to why it was granted by magistrates. Claire told the Northamptonshire Telegraph, We are, of course, pleased that Adam Stein is now on the register and will be subject to all of the restrictions on his life that that will bring. He has to go and sign that register 
and has extra stipulations that he didn't have on his last release. But we're now calling for a meeting with Robert Buckland because we believe he's dodging our questions. It appears that they think there are no issues with Stein's previous release, so we want to sit down with him so he can explain his thinking to us. Claire and Lauren are also upset that the amount of information they've been given by the authorities has been limited by this burning need to protect the human rights of Stein, and so submitted a formal complaint to the East of England National Probation Service about Stein's supervision during his previous release, claiming he was insufficiently monitored and that they should have been informed that he had changed his name. The NPS investigated, but the family was ultimately informed that their investigation had found no wrongdoing and that the monitoring of Stein during his release was sufficient, stating. While it is evidence that Adam Stein did breach a condition of licence, the responsibility for the behaviour which led to that breach lies solely with him. Any individual in the UK has the right to change his or her name through legal means. The rationale for licensees choosing to undertake this course of action can often be underpinned by their concerns about their own safety and or to support their rehabilitation within the community. I can confirm that all agencies involved in AS's supervision are fully aware of the legal name by which AS is known. They added that disclosing the information to Colette's family may undermine their duty to uphold Stein's, I quote, legal right to have his private life respected. Yes, what a kick in the fucking teeth. Colette's family's fears were founded when, in September 2022, it was reported that Stein had once again been ordered back to prison after breaching the conditions of his release, with the Ministry of Justice confirming that Stein was recalled on July 26th of last year and was returned to prison the following day. A Ministry of Justice spokesperson said, Protecting the public is our number one priority, so when offenders breach the conditions of their release, we don't hesitate to return them to custody. Furthermore, in November 2022, it was reported that Stein had been sentenced to an additional four-year prison sentence in conjunction with this recall, though again, in the interests of his human rights, it has been ruled that details of what he was sentenced for, what prison he's in, and even an up-to-date photograph of Stein cannot be revealed, though it is reported that Stein's appearance is now unrecognisable from pictures of him taken before his trial in 1986 because he's reportedly bald-headed, has shaved his moustache off and looks much younger than his 63 years. Colette's family were simply told he had received a four-year prison sentence by an undisclosed Crown Court for an unknown crime, that he cannot be released before the earliest date of November 2024 and that any subsequent release will be subject to the approval of the parole board. Claire said that given Stein was now subject to further restrictions by being on the sex offenders register, she worried that this latest breach concerned women or children, saying, As a family, we were more than happy to know that he is back where he belongs. Unfortunately, that happiness is also tainted with the unanswered questions around what offence has resulted in the recall? 
It's always our biggest worry that he's hurt another child or another woman. We deeply hope there isn't another victim at his hands, because four-year sentences are not handed out easily. This continued loop of release and recalls is a life sentence that he has handed us as a family. Each and every time, our mum is put straight back to the darkest days of her life. Never being able to fully move on, never having peace as Stein repeatedly reoffends, always waiting for the next change of circumstances, and the merry-go-round of hurt continues. It is now time for the relevant bodies to stop pushing rehabilitation on offenders such as this monster, a monster who time and time again shows he is not someone who can be safely managed in the public. It's time for them to protect the public once and for all. How many times as a family must we go through this before it's recognised that this waste of oxygen belongs in prison for the rest of his days? You shouldn't be allowed out if you've raped and murdered a child anyway. Given that he was out on the highest level of monitoring and has still reoffended, this is surely proof that he cannot be safely managed in public and is therefore never going to be fit for re-release. The protection should be for women and children, yet it seems the most protection is given to the offender. Public protection should be number one, and in this case, it really isn't. This time it's a longer sentence for him, and we don't know why, and it's quite concerning. The lack of transparency is shocking. What happened to open justice? Why is everything so cloak and dagger? We only hope this is not due to there being more victims at the hands of an offender who has repeatedly shown nothing but a lack of remorse and rehabilitation. We will never give up fighting in Colette's memory. This man is a risk and always will be a risk. A probation service spokesperson said, The board recognises the pain and anguish victims will go through when an offender is going through a parole review and even more so if that offender is released. As such, we absolutely welcome input from victims when deciding licence conditions and will consider any requests for additional conditions extremely carefully. Victim engagement is a vital part of the parole process and we are committed to ensuring victims are kept fully informed about any updates and information regarding parole reviews. It is vital for the parole system that victims are kept notified of their rights to make victim personal statements and request license conditions. Protecting the public is our number one priority. Let's just see how much of a priority that really is when Adam Stein is next up before a parole board. Because with what this individual has done and all of the reports about him, it doesn't seem to be anywhere near a number one priority, does it? It is without question one of the worst cases ever featured on the show this tale is. Anything to do with children or the elderly always brings the revulsion out in me. But Stein, well, a true monster indeed, that he. He was incredibly close to being the subject of this series, Monsters of Episode 2. Although I have another subject in mind for that. What a heartbreaking crime though, a six-year-old girl merely walking to the bus stop. And I suppose it is tragic tales such as Colette's that bring home just how different a world it is now. For you wouldn't entertain the thought of a six-year-old even being out of your sight today, would you? You just wouldn't. I mean that in no disrespect to her mum Karen at all. 
for when I was about Colette's age, I was off playing everywhere for hours on end and coming home when I was hungry and certainly walking to school without my mum, usually with friends. It was just what you did back then and at six, you know pretty much nothing but the good in the world, don't you? From what we've heard about Stein, I could certainly believe him being responsible for countless other sexual offences and remember the telling statement they didn't have enough evidence to prosecute him in Milton Keynes back in 1984. It's not quite the same as saying he didn't do it, is it? References suicide attempt. I don't believe it was out of sheer remorse for what he'd done to a six-year-old child. And it certainly wasn't because he couldn't live with himself for what he'd done, because he's managed that just fine for the past 37 years. To me, it appears much more rather in remorse for himself, unable to face up to the monster that he is. Or perhaps it was because he knew he would soon be caught out, and out of fear of the countless years ahead he knew he would be spending in prison reviled as a child sex killer. The latter reason would also go some way to explain why he denied rape but admitted the killing, which he couldn't really deny as Colette's body was found in his loft. But how would you admit you've raped a six-year-old girl before suffocating her with cling film? It's easier to just deny and claim this bullshit story of no memory rather than face up to that. So then, this is someone who the then Home Secretary ruled Oh, 20 years is a much better minimum term rather than 25. I mean, the mind boggles, doesn't it? Someone responsible for such actions should never, ever see the light of day again. And it was the first decision that sickened me out of a few. Another was the fight that Colette's family and her sisters are amazing women. I think they're both incredible people to have the fight and drive that they do in memory of a sister that one never met and the other can barely remember. The fight that they had to get Stein placed onto the sex offenders register. This is seriously flawed this. It really does seem to cater for the rights of those who commit the worst atrocities rather than the victims here. And really, there shouldn't be too much of a dilemma, should there? Surely, if you commit sexual offences at any time, be it 50 years ago, and you're released from prison, onto that register you should go. You give up any of your fucking rights when you smother a six-year-old girl with cling film. Who in their right and decent mind would argue against that or try to empathise with the welfare of those we're talking about not to be subject to that? It should be a unanimous vote in complete favour of it. For all the parole board bang on about protecting the public is our number one priority and all this bollocks and, and they're all about transparency, then if they really mean that, then fights like that Lauren and Claire have had to get a monster like Stein onto the register should be unnecessary, shouldn't they? The other thing that vexed me is that Stein was released on parole after that minimum term, despite recommendations from the professionals whose weight is supposed to allow or block decisions such as this recommending against it, only for him to be recalled 16 months later. So you'd think, yeah, He's not right for release this one. That was his hard worked for chance and he's bollocksed it up. It's his own fault that. See you in the nick for the rest of your life, dickhead. 
only for him to be released for a second time a couple of years later. Despite being unsuccessful at two parole hearings in the interim, being allowed to change his name, to not have his picture published as so many others released have, then for him to be subsequently recalled again, for reasons serious enough to land him a four-year prison term, and all this, Colette's family have had to fight tooth and nail to even find out scant details about. Is it just me, or is there something seriously wrong here? The powers that be that are in charge of this hang your heads, you are an absolute disgrace, and decisions such as releasing someone clearly proven not fit to be makes a mockery of those who are left with an equal life sentence for things that they've done. Those whose rights and welfare should be considered long and predominantly before any rights that beasts like Stein may have. Shame on you, and should he offend again and be recalled, and you see a bit of a pattern in his described behaviour, so it's not a long shot that, because he clearly isn't rehabilitated, I agree with and support the sisters wholly, then I hope your decisions keep you awake for many nights indeed. Absolute disgrace. What do you think? The episode Colette features a tale that has sickened and angered me this one. It really has, as you can undoubtedly tell, or I hope that you can anyway. I really do. And it's certainly one I would love hearing your thoughts and feedback on in the thread that's up in the show's Facebook discussion group or through any of the show's social media links. Wherever you want, you can even come and have a pint with me and we can chat about it. It's onwards and upwards onto the next tale now then, as it's wrap up and shut up time here. So all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, thanks so much for joining me in the MOG today, and goodbye for now.